Pray with me. God, thanks so much that you have called us your children, um, that you've brought us into your family. Um, God, we are just grateful that we can be together, that we can um, set this part of our lives, this part of our week aside to learn uh, to be reformed. Uh, God, we we trust that as we uh, come together because we want to, that you meet us here, God, that your spirit is already in this place, is already within us, and God, we want to be open to it. We want to give you access to our minds and our hearts and our lives, God, because we trust you that you are good. And so, God, we, we pray that as we look into your word, as we just stare into the beauty of Jesus, that we would be transformed. God, any, any parts of our lives that we need a, a touch from your Spirit, that we need a fresh word from you, God, we trust that you would give it to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> it's good to see you all this morning. And uh, we'd love to have you take out your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John, the book of Primero Juan, um, one of the last books in the Bible. This is week five in the series that you may know. And um, I, I, hope, I hope it's been good. I hope as you uh, personally and as we as a, a church have been just sort of marinating in, uh, in this portion of Scripture, not going fast, just sort of taking our time, nothing fancy, that um, you just... I guess are sort of getting to know these things that John cares so much about. Uh, he writes with this sort of pastor's heart, calling us into new ways of living. Um, and, and I hope it's been meaningful. I hope it's been uh, transformative. I hope it will continue to be that over the next couple of weeks as we just keep moving through this beautiful portion of Scripture. So this morning, uh, what we want to do is we want to look at 12 verses. Uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 10. And so I'm just going to read them. Um, you can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles, or you can just, you can listen. Uh, if it's helpful to just, um, to just listen, to just close your eyes, and to hear these words, do, do whatever is most helpful for you. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Now, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, um, might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. And no one who lives in him keeps on sinning, and no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Verse 7. Now, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning since the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. So, this is our text for the morning. And um, maybe you've started to notice that the way John writes is a little different than what we're used to. Uh, We have been trained in kind of like a Western way of thinking that's very linear and sequential. Um, most of us function this way, where like when you're reading something or you're making a case, it's like you, 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 get, you make your point A. And then after you have point A firmly established, you move to point B, and B builds on A, and then to C, and C builds on A and B. And just keep moving that way. It's linear, it's sequential, and you make your case that way. And John doesn't write that way. John writes in this m- much more Eastern um, way of sort of Eastern logic. He, he, it's very circular. Like you, you can almost like, as John's writing, you're like, wait a second, I'm having trouble, you know, sort of catching on. Like where he, where's he going with this? And that's the way he writes, is he gives us this kind of like 360 degree view of his themes, these things that he finds really, really important. And so uh, what I want to do is rather than moving through the text from like verse 28 of chapter 2 to verse 10 of chapter 3, I want to just point out some of the themes that John holds up and some of the sort of key ideas that he pulls out for us that, again, I believe are really, really life-changing if we will allow them to be. So, everything John says in this passage is sort of sandwiched between this idea of Christ has appeared and Christ will appear again. Uh, One of the major themes in this passage is the word appear. In fact, the word appear appears five times in in these 12 verses. So this is a major thing. Like there's something significant about Christ has appeared, past tense, and Christ will appear, future tense. So let's take a look. uh, Chapter uh, 3, verse 5. It says, But you know that he appeared, this is Jesus, he appeared, that he might take away our sins. Verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So what's John talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the incarnation, the enfleshing of Almighty God in the person, Jesus of Nazareth. That that God became human in Jesus, stepped into this world um, in real time with real people. And as we look back to the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, we find an anchor for our lives. And so John is kind of calling people back, like, look back to this this concrete example of how God has created human beings to live. Look at the example in Jesus. And and he says, like, this, this whole thing of Jesus appearing, he points to two reasons why Jesus appeared. Two reasons. Um, and these two reasons... Um, are to take away our sins and to destroy the works of the devil. Like he says, okay, here are two reasons why Jesus appeared, became flesh in in, in Jesus of Nazareth, is to take away our sins and to destroy the work of the devil. John has, he's passionate about sin. He talks a lot about sin uh, in his book and in this uh, chunk of scripture especially. Um, 
And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, we kind of talked about how there was this group of people in the church in the end of the first century when John's writing that had pulled away from the body of Christ. They pulled away from the church because they, they claimed to have special revelation. They said, hey, here's the deal. Um, we have this special knowledge from God. And because we have special knowledge, we are sort of released from the ethical sort of moving of the church. Like, the church had kind of said, because we follow Jesus, there are these ethics that hold us together. These things that matter about how we live with our bodies in this world. But this group of people who pulled away, they said, no, 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 like, we have this special knowledge. And so, because we have special knowledge, uh, they sort of looked down on these simple-minded Christ followers um, who were kind of stuck in this sort of uh, ethical way of living and said, no, this, this special knowledge, it frees us to live however we want to. Like that there, there are sort of no boundaries. Like that we just sort of get to pursue everything we want to because we have, this is, our knowledge is what saves us. It has no bearing on how we actually live in the world. And John says that there's a big problem with that. It's just not what Jesus taught. It's not the gospel. He, so he keeps coming back to this 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 idea of sin, that there are ways of living in the world that are damaging. They're damaging to us, and they're damaging to others, and they're damaging to creation and the world as a whole. And, and so he's passionate about that. He won't sort of let us forget that. Um, John reminds the church that one of the primary reasons that Jesus appeared was to take away our sins and to destroy the work of the devil, who's been sinning from the very beginning. That the the devil is kind of the one who enticed us to sin in the first place. And Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, he undercut the power of the enemy, of the devil, of God's adversary. So, like, what is sin? If we were going to, like, take a poll, like, okay, what is sin? Not like what particular things are sin, but what is sin in general? We probably all maybe come up with some varying definitions. But one way of thinking about sin uh, is rebellion. Sin is rebellion. It's, uh, sin is, is saying, okay, there is a grain to God's good world. There's a, there's a grain to God's good universe. And sin is choosing to go against that grain. How many woodworkers do we have in here, right? Sin is choosing to go against the grain of the way God created the world to be. Uh, sin is rebellion. In fact, in verse 4 it says, um, That everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion. Um, That God created this world. He created a good, beautiful world. And he created human beings, you and I, in his image. And he created us to live the best possible kind of lives. And sin is this sort of rebellious thing that happens inside of us that says, I kind of want to run my own life. And I want to do what I want to do, and I kind of want to, you know, make, make my own decisions. Please don't tell me what to do. How many of you have an inner rebel? How many of you, like, when there's, like, when there's sort of a do not, you do. Like, there's, it's just, how many of you have an outer rebel? Like, you know, it's not so much an inner rebel, it's the way I am. Uh, an inner James Dean. How many remember James Dean? Rebel without a cause. He looks really tame after, like, 50 years or whatever it was. James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause, or maybe you resonate more with this, right? I love that. Or this. Maybe you can't read the sign. Do not climb, play on or around pipe, 
as everyone is climbing on, playing on and around the pipe or this maybe. Uh, you got to love that, right? We have this like this sort of this inner rebel that says, ah, oh, just show me where the boundaries are and I will cross them. Um, and so like sin is rebellion. It is a moving against the grain of God's good world, of a way that God has created us to live and to flourish in this world. Now, sin, um, it destroys the image of God in us and others. So it's ultimately, sin is ultimately a failure to love, right? If, if the grain of God's world is love, that's what John is saying again and again and again, sin is ultimately a failure to love God, to be loved by God, and to love others in, as people made in God's image, because it damages them. It uses them. And, and so, uh, sin is not a really popular topic. It's not a church growth strategy. Like, to talk, talk about sin, and we always, like, try to put sin in its proper proportion. Because the Bible, sin doesn't have the first word, and it doesn't have the last word. And so we, we, we try to put sin in its proper proportion, but John's passionate about this, and so we have to talk about it. And sin, it's not a super popular topic, because um, how many of you know that the world we live in this, this culture we live in specifically is, has raised the, the idea of tolerance to the highest possible place. Tolerance is the supreme virtue in our culture, right? Now, tolerance is great. Tolerance is a great virtue. Um, there are over 7 billion people in the world. Uh, many of them have different r- religious persuasions and different cultures, and sometimes those things clash. And so we would do well to have a bit more tolerance with one another in our differences in the world, right? I mean, this is, this is a good thing to appreciate differences, to celebrate those differences, to tolerate one another. But what we've done maybe over the past 50 years or so is we've taken tolerance and we've said this is the highest thing we can do is tolerance. It's a supreme virtue. And then what happens when we do this is it can kind of create this, like, this culture of whateverism. Whateverism. Um, is a great word. Um, and how many of you feel this? You know what? Hey, we're cool. Like, you just do whatever's right for you, figure out what, what's right for you, and I'll do what's right for me, and, and we'll just sort of be this kind of live and let live thing. Like, I mean, that, how many of you feel that? It's, Whatever, whatever goes, whatever, whatever you direction you want to live your life, that's, that's totally fine. But this is, this is what I'm going to do. And for somebody to say, you know what? Like, there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. It feels like, who are you to tell me what is right and what's wrong? Like, we, we sort of, we put up these defenses to say, no, no, no. Like, it feels like domineering and superior. And, and so... We have, to, we have to name that. But here's the thing. As disciples of Jesus, we are those people who have said yes to Jesus, who have surrendered our lives to Jesus. And do you know what happens when we do that? Is we tell him, you have the authority to shape my life. We place ourselves under the authority of Jesus to say, as we look back to his appearing, to his teachings, to his life, to his example— we surrender and submit ourselves to the example of Jesus. As we look back to his life, we find an anchor to say, this is our direction, this is our center, this is what we're pursuing together. And we're all going to be at different places on that journey, but this is where we're moving. 
And so um, we do this because we trust Jesus. I mean, we trust him because he's given his life for us. We trust him because we believe he has the keys to life, like the, the kind of life we were always meant to live, the kind of life that is true and is abundant and is eternal. And here's the thing, everybody in this world is going to have to live their lives like following somebody. Is, is one of the basic things about what it means to be a human being is that we learn how to live in this world by imitating other people. And so we're all going to choose who we imitate, whether it's parents or celebrities or um, whoever it may be. And if you can find a person that you would rather imitate than Jesus of Nazareth, please go ahead. Like, if you can find a better example uh, of how to, to live in, in the fullest, richest kind of way, follow, follow that person. But for the last 2,000 years, no one has even come close to captivating the imaginations of people like this man, the way he loved, the way he saw people. And so we trust Jesus. And so we, as followers of Jesus, we place ourselves in submission to him and we give him the right to tell us what is, what is appropriate and what is not, what is sin and rebellion and what is flourishing. We can go against the grain of, the, of God's universe, but we'll probably end up with some splinters. Right? We, we, we can choose to do this, but it's probably going to lead to some pain, lead to some destruction. So sin is rebellion. Um, now the whole world is, like one of the worldviews of the Bible is that the whole world is actually in rebellion against its rightful king. is God. Jesus is the rightful king of heaven and earth, and the whole world exists in a state of rebellion against God. Um, that, and the devil is kind of the one who entices us into these ways of living that look like they're freedom, but they're actually bondage. They actually end up enslaving us. And, and so the world exists in this place of rebellion, but Jesus appears, comes into the world, and what he does is he launches a rebellion against the rebellion. This is what the church is. So now, all of you James Dean wannabes, you get to like unleash this inner rebel in a Christ-centered way to say, my life is going to be lived in rebellion against the rebellion. While everybody says, hate your enemies, I will love my enemies. I will follow the way of Jesus that is actually with the grain of God's world, and it will be difficult, and it will also be beautiful. Does this make sense? Anybody, anybody tracking? Okay, good deal. Should we talk about sins more? Is that good? Anybody want to like, no, never mind. Um, we just have a confession time right here. Um, so we, we've given our allegiance to Jesus. So, John reminds his readers that this is what the first appearing of Jesus is. It, it saves us from sin. It, it undercuts the power of the devil, defeats the power of the enemy. And then he says this. So, remember, though, verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He says, live out of your new identity. You have been brought into God's family. You've been made his child. And so now, rather than like this heavy-handed, like, you should do this, it's a freeing thing to say, I get to live out who I already am. How many of you saw this story uh, over the last week of this, this little girl who found out that she was being adopted by her foster parents? You see this? It was like on the Today Show and CNN made the, made the rounds. This little girl has been in foster care with her two siblings, and she's been in this foster family that she really loves, and <clears throat> they were going through all the court proceedings to try to, try to adopt her. 
And so they, they go to the court, they find out everything's good, we're going to get to adopt her. And so they call the school and they tell a family friend who works at the school, like, would you tell her the good news that she's going to be our, in our family forever? And they go and the, the lady who's a family friend like grabs her by the shoulders and says, like, shares the good news. And it's all captured on a surveillance camera. And she like jumps up into the lady's arms and grabs her and like wraps her legs around her and is like kicking her feet, like just overcome with joy that she has been brought into this family that loves her. And not only that, but her two siblings are coming in as well. I mean, just this unbelievable picture of, of the joy of being included in God's family. This is a picture, I think, of like this, this extravagant love of God that has just said, like, I want you as my child. I want you in my family. I want to change your identity to be somebody who is included, somebody who's loved, somebody who belongs. And, and this, is, this is what God does for us. And he doesn't do it because we're so special. He doesn't do it because we've earned it. He doesn't do it because we've, like, got our acts together. He just says, like, I, I'm inviting you to come. And by the way, who, who's invited to be in God's family? Maybe we can say, who's not invited to be in God's family? Right? This is, this is indiscriminate. This is all-inclusive. The only thing we have to do is just say yes. Like, that's, that's what I want. I want to be in God's family. This amazing love. Now, what's going to happen to this young girl over time is she's going to learn the rhythms of love in this family, right? I mean, she's going to learn how to just, like, live out of this new identity being included. If you were to move in with us, right, if you were to put yourself in our house, you would realize that there are some rhythms in our family that you would just learn. Um, You would learn um, that we have lots of dance parties. Like, it's one of the things we have, like, this big spot in our living room, and we, we we like to get our swerve on so we've got dance parties. You would learn that we eat dinner together. Like, this is, like, this is sacred time for us. Um, we try to eat dinner together every night. It doesn't happen every night, but we, we eat around the table. And sometimes it's super simple, but we just, we really value that time together as a family because those days are numbered, right? And, and, and this, is, this is important, and so we value that. Um, we value kindness, so we're always talking about, like, would you, let's be kind to one another. Uh, one of the things we really value in our family is no whining. This is like, this is one of the things that's said probably almost more than anything else in our family is stop whining, right? And Carmen tells me this all the time, and I still haven't <laughs> caught on. But we've said like, whining for us is like, it's like nails on a chalkboard, you know, that, that oh, but I just want to do this. Um, so I'm working on it. But like, there are these rhythms that eventually you just sort of grow up in that and you learn it. And it becomes a part of you, and you take on these values, and you start living out of them. This is what it means to be in God's family, is that we just, like, learn the rhythms of God's people, of God's family. We take on this new identity inside of us, and we start to live it out. If, God, if we're God's children, that makes us family, right? It means you're not alone. That means um, in the middle of life that is hard, in the middle of a journey that is really long, we are not alone. And you're surrounded by people who love you and who care about you and who are committed to you and will walk with you, especially when things get hard. You are not alone. This is what it means to be a part of God's family. It it, it means that when you're celebrating, you have people to celebrate with you. This is what God wants for us. This is what it means to be the church. So we live out of this new identity. Now, um, let's get to this really crazy verse. Verse 9 says, no one who's born of God will continue to sin. 
Maybe you're like, wait a second. We've got some problems here because I continue to sin. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed, the seed of the Holy Spirit, remains in them. So they cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Anyone who does sin is not born of God. What, what, what in the world does that mean? Like, is John calling us to perfection? To say, like, hey, if you're going to be born of God, you're going to be in the family of God, you've got to be perfect, stop sinning. If you do sin, that means you don't belong to God, you belong to the devil. Is that what John is saying? He's calling us to perfection. Well, I don't think so. And part of the reasons I don't think so, one of the reasons is because earlier in 1 John 1, the end of 1 John 1 and 1 John 2, he says, hey, we, we sin, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And if we do sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, who's given his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, right? So, is John calling us to perfection? I don't think so. But one of the ways of thinking about it is this. We, um, when we live in a state of rebellion, and when sin is our norm, it's like playing really bad music. If I was going to walk over here to the keys and start playing, it would be ear-piercing, right? Because I don't know what I'm doing. I would make some really bad music. And so life against the grain, life in rebellion to Jesus, is making this kind of ugly music. It's ear-piercing music. It's a lot like country music. And so, like, you just imagine, right? Ah, turn it off. So you imagine yourself, like, this is, this is where we were, because we didn't know any better, playing this music. And it hurts us and it hurts others. But all of a sudden, now that our identity has changed, now that we've received God's love, He is teaching us how to play a new song. He's teaching us how to play new kinds of music. And this music is beautiful. But the thing is, we kind of have to learn it. And every once in a while, we slip and we play that old song. We play an old note. But now it's not the song we're playing anymore. Now we recognize it as a mistake. And because we recognize it as a mistake, we say, ah, I need some help. And so we ask God for help. And we ask others who know how to play the song better than us. We say, would you come? Would you help me? Because I can't quite figure this out. And they say, sure, like put your fingers here. And this is the rhythm. And you learn from others who are more further down the road. And then when others are struggling with this, you come alongside of them and you teach them what you have learned. This is what John is talking about here. When we, <clears throat> when we sin, when we mess up, we recognize this is not my song. This is a mistake. This, is not, this doesn't belong in my life. And we just continue playing the song God. Does this make sense? You know where the problem comes in? You know where the church gets its name of like judgmental and bigoted and all that stuff? It's when we start pointing out music of people who have never asked us if they're playing a good song or not. You know, that's the problem. It's like when, when we go around and we say, yeah, you're playing bad music. Stop listening to country music, right? Stop it. That's the problem is when we haven't like when we haven't been invited into people's lives and we just start pointing out, no, no, that's wrong. Let me, let me show you how to do that. That's when people sort of push us away. Our job, as it relates in the church, is to help each other play this music. Our job, as it relates to people outside the church, is just to keep playing beautiful music and to be a compelling, a compelling vision of what life can be. So, um, <clears throat> this, is all, this is all looking back to the first appearing of Christ. This is what he has done for us. He's done these things. But then John turns and he says, ah, but when Christ appears, there's this looking ahead 
to this beautiful, like the, the culmination of all things. He says, now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his appearing. Verse 2, dear friends, now we know that we are God's children and what we will be has not yet been made known. This song is not perfected. The song isn't complete, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. I mean, there should almost be a catch in our throat when we say that. Like that the deepest longing of our heart is to see Christ face to face. And something happens when we stare into the, the, the beauty of who Christ is. Because we're transformed. It, it, it's, it's life-changing. And because John like, says, like, we look back to this first appearing, and we look ahead to this second appearing, like when we, have, when we have prayed, God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and someday God's kingdom will come. And his will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything we've given our lives for will be completed. And we will stand as God's child in front of Jesus who we have given our lives to. And that experience, no matter how much we can think about it, no matter how like, amazing we try to picture it, it's going to be a dim comparison to the reality. I remember like, I went to London a couple of years ago. Um, I say a couple of years ago, I'm getting really old. This was like 18 years ago or whatever it was. Oh, man. Um, and like we did this tourist thing, went to visit some friends and did this tourist thing. And there were these little signs that were directing us, you know, around all the major sites in London. And there was this little castle, this little white castle and a brown sign. And you recognize, it was like, oh, that's a castle. And it said Windsor Castle this way. And so like you follow these signs and you sort of come around the corner and you see this walkway and you see this spectacular sight of Windsor Castle sort of sprawled out in front of you. It looks nothing like the little white castle on the brown sign, right? And so anything we imagine about the world to come, about God's restored creation, about what we will be when we are made whole and we stand and look in the face of Jesus, there's only one word that can describe it, and it's more. More than we can imagine, more than we could have hoped, more than we can dream. And when we keep this in front of us, it pulls us forward. We purify ourselves because God is pure and we want to play this beautiful song. God, we ask that, that these words of your scriptures, your words, God, would, would speak to us. God, pray that your Holy Spirit would just be at work in us. If there are places of just persistent sin where... Um, God, we just keep playing the same song again and again. God, give us the courage to, to ask for help, uh, to ask for help from you, to ask for help from, from friends, from brothers and sisters, people in your family who love us and who will gladly help us. God, thanks that you, you've given your life to take away sins, to, to set us free from the power of the enemy. God, um, Make us wise, help us to see the beauty of Christ, to pursue the beauty of Christ with everything we have. God, give us a vision of the fulfillment of all things. Lord Jesus, that you will return. And God, everything we've given our lives to, God, um, it will be so full of hope and so full of joy and more beautiful than we can ever imagine. God, call us forward into this. May our lives make beautiful music. We pray this in Jesus' name.